Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text for today, the 16th chapter of St. Mark, these words. And the angel said to the women in the tomb, Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you unto Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and they fled from the tomb. And they said nothing because they were afraid. This is our text. Blessed Easter morning, dear friends, in our Lord Jesus Christ. The most memorable monarch of England. Who is it? And I'm sure that with me, most of you would think right away, especially of that unusual king who had six wives and who decided that he would not put up with them all, and so he created his own church in order to deal with the conflicts that might result from it. King Henry VIII, you'll recall, even though his reign was about 25 years shorter than another monarch of England, Victoria. And were I to ask you, and who in your mind is the most memorable Prime Minister of England? You probably would say what most would, Winston Churchill, even though his time as Prime Minister was considerably shorter than that of another one in the 20th century, namely Margaret Thatcher. And it's about Margaret Thatcher that I have one of my favorite Easter anecdotes. You remember Margaret Thatcher. She was well known in political circles for being a woman of tenacity, of determination, the same sort that Winston Churchill had. She was known indeed to political friends and foes alike as being the Iron Lady. She was a lady who was in control of things. So much so that shortly after moving into the British Prime Minister's residence at 10 Downing Street in London, she was, or her husband Dennis was asked by a rather wily Newsman, who wears the pants in these house? To which he responded, I do. That's after I wash them and iron them. <laughs> she was a tough lady, but she was also a soft soul. In fact, before becoming a British politician, she was one of the team of British scientists who developed the process of making soft ice cream. Thank you, Lady Thatcher because without her we probably wouldn't have Foster's Freeze. A gentle soul in other regards as well. It was 25 years ago, this coming October, back in 1984, that at the Grand Hotel of Brighton, England, where a conference was being held at about 2 o'clock in the morning, a terrorist bomb exploded. It was intended for Thatcher. But fortunately, she was spared, as were most of her cabinet members. But not so a half a dozen of her friends who had come to spend the time at that place with them. They were all killed, at least a half a dozen of them. The following Sunday morning, Margaret Thatcher went to church as she always did. But in particular, that Sunday morning was very different than previous Sunday mornings had been as she sang the great songs of faith in the Anglican Church and sang the Anglican liturgy and listened to the sermon and saw the candles in the altar and saw the, the sunlight flooding through the stained glass windows upon the altar, this iron lady wept. 
She wept because suddenly, she said, everything around her had been changed by the loss of her dear friends. Even the familiar had now, in a rather odd sort of a way, become unfamiliar to her. And I know that there are many of you here who have had the same experience in your lives during the course of this past year. Many of us know from our own personal experiences with the death of a loved one, the power that death has to make even the familiar suddenly seem unfamiliar. The power that it has to make the same surroundings suddenly feel so different than what they did but a week or a month or a year ago. The power that it has to suddenly strip our homes and our hearts and our lives of those who are dear to us, of those always so near to us that now it's hard to imagine that they seem so far away from us. We know the feeling. With the passing of every year in the course of our lives, we all know it. And if we don't, we will. And we learn to know it well. We can certainly identify with Lady Thatcher at the death of her dear friends. Even as we can with one of the characters in the Broadway musical entitled Les Miserables, you'll remember perhaps when this young man, seeing so many of his friends killed in an ill-fated attempt at a rebellion, sang this rather sad song, and he sang, There's grief that can't be spoken, there's a pain that goes on and on. Empty chairs at empty tables, friends dead and gone. We've all sung that song. If not, we will. Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, all too often, sons and daughters, good friends, gone, empty chairs at our tables. Undoubtedly, that's the sort of pain that must have grabbed the disciples. That's the kind of pain that must have gripped the women who suddenly had Jesus stripped from them by force, ripped from them so quickly and then nailed so quickly to a Roman cross that was on a hill just outside of the city of Jerusalem, a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Devastated by what they saw happen on that cross, their minds must have been confused, their confidence crushed by that tragic and horrific death of the one in whom they placed so many of their hopes, the one in whom they placed their dreams for the future, victims of the obvious sins of other people, not just the Romans and the Jews that cried out, but victims also, they knew it of their own sins, and somehow they knew that their own sins were inexplicably involved in the crucifixion of this one that they loved so dearly, that they loved so much. They knew it. Their sins, the sin of others, now being further complicated by circumstances that were far beyond their control, it must have all seemed so confusing to them. At first, to them, sin had undoubtedly done its worst, and their sins, it certainly seemed to them, were far bigger, far bigger than the man of whom John the Baptist had said, the man on the cross of whom John the Baptist had earlier said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now it seemed not that he had taken sin away, but from their perspective as they looked at the cross, it must have seemed to them at first that sin had taken him away and that death was holding him down. Sin does that, you know. Sin will take people away. And death will hold people down. 
Therefore, Scripture says, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death has spread unto all men because all have sinned. Sin puts us down, and death holds us down, even as the prophet Isaiah said in today's Old Testament lesson. He calls death that shroud that enfolds all people. He calls it that blanket that covers all nations. It's there for all. It's the common denominator of us all. It comes to most of us much sooner than we wish it would, not just to those who are 70, 80, 90 years old and more, but all too often it comes to youth and to children too, as it came by way of violence this past week to little eight-year-old Sandra Cantu of Tracy, California, or to the two little children killed by a gunman yesterday in Louisiana, or by way of natural disaster to the students who perished last week under the dormitories destroyed by earthquake in Italy. You see, it is, as the prophet said, death is that shroud that enfolds all people, that blanket that covers all nations. Any wonder that the disciples were afraid in the face of death as they saw it there, as we perceive it here? Any wonder at all that they were afraid of that? Men, Scripture says, who fled in fear when they saw it all happen at the time of Jesus' arrest, they fled in fear. And then later they huddled together, locked in the upper room. Why? Because they were afraid of the Jews, Scripture tells us. And the women, they were afraid too. There weren't any iron ladies among them. They were fearful. How many times in our text for today do we hear that the women were afraid? It says they were alarmed. It then says they were trembling. It says they were bewildered. The women went out, it says, and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Five times in a few sentences, a, a terrified bunch, be it men or women, frightened alike into silence. And who can blame them? Who can blame them for saying nothing unto anyone? After all, isn't it true that hatred for the king is often transferred also then to the king's couriers? And this is their king. He had a sign above his cross that read, King of the Jews. Would the violence done to him now be transferred to his couriers if they went out and brought the message of him elsewhere? They most certainly thought that the same thing might happen if they were identified as his couriers and his confessors as well. Just last week, my wife and I finished watching the first season of a television miniseries entitled The Tudors. Perhaps some of you have seen some of it. A relatively accurate presentation of the life in the times of Henry VIII. In one of its episodes where he's confronting issues with the King of France, his name was Francis I, reminded me of an anecdote that I read some years ago about a time when Henry VIII ordered one of his couriers to carry a message from him to the French king, and the message was angry, and the message was heated, and the message was threatening. Now, understandably, the courier was quite concerned. He was quite nervous about being the bearer of all of this bad and angry news, and so he gathered the strength to say to his monarch, risking a lot to be able to say it, and he went to his monarch, King Henry, and he said, Your Majesty, please bear with me. But if the King of France 
is angered by your message to him, he may well cut off my head. Have no fear, King Henry said. If he does, I'll cut off the heads of a hundred Frenchmen in my domain, to which the courier carefully responded, So you may, your majesty, but of all the heads that you cut off, I'm afraid that none of them will fit upon my shoulders. <laughs> and he was right. You see, the king saying, Have no fear, means nothing at all if the king doesn't have the power to back it up to restore what the courier loses, especially if what he loses is his own life. And that's why, dear friends, of all days, this day, today, Easter, is so indispensably important to our faith and to our confession, and that's why the words first spoken by the angel of God to the women who arrived at the vacated tomb are vitally important to each and every one of us and should be in our hearts and upon our lips. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Those are the words that declare for all time and for all places, for all people to hear that our king is different from every other. Our king will restore Whatever in life is faithful couriers and confessors lose at the hands of the world. Those are words that resurrect hope within us when it seems in every other way that all hope has died. Remember the two disciples of our Lord on the road to Damascus after the crucifixion had taken place? Hope for them had died, hadn't it? What was it that they said? They said, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Notice the past tense of what they said. We had hoped, they hoped no more. They had had hoped, but they had none. Hope died for them when Jesus died. Hope no more. Some anonymous poet of a previous era put it this way. He said, he died, and with him perished all that men hold dear. Hope lay beside him in the sepulcher, and love grew corpse cold, and all things beautiful beside died when he died. But then, thankfully, that same poet goes on to add these words. But he rose, and with him hope rose, and life and light. Men said, not Christ, but death died yesternight. And joy and truth and all things virtuous rose when he rose. The angel had a right. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Words about a resurrected reality confirmed and then verified not simply by a handful of frightened men who would hide out in an upper room at the first opportunity they had, or a handful of bewildered and confused women who saw him and spoke with him on the very path that they had walked down that morning to see him in the tomb. The testimony of those men and women alone, having seen him alive, they said they did, would have been compelling enough evidence for us and for any reasonable soul to say with the angels, throughout the ages, and the church as well, he's risen, he's risen indeed, that would be enough, but that's not all there is. To, to the eyewitness testimony of those many men and women, 
Not only once or twice that repeatedly saw him after his death, we must most certainly add the testimony that St. Paul talks about, as we heard in the epistle lesson this morning. I delivered unto you of first importance, he said, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared unto Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred at one time, most of whom remain yet alive. Indisputable evidence in any court of law. That's resurrection reality, dear friends. That's that upon which the church and your life is built. That's hope restored, summoning us to face our sins boldly and to say, charge me with whatever you will. It has no place anymore in my life. None, I say, because of the resurrection of my Lord Jesus Christ, which is my signed receipt, my guarantee that my sins have been paid for in full, my eternal warranty that God himself now holds nothing against me. That's hope revived, summoning me to face the troubles and the trials and the challenges of life head on, saying with St. Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's hope renewed as we face sickness and loneliness and ultimately even each of us facing death head on, knowing as the Old Testament lesson today says that through the resurrection of his son, God has, quote, swallowed up death, swallowed it forever, and he will therefore wipe away all the tears from our eyes. That's hope resurrected. Laying a hold by God's grace of the words of our Lord Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live because I live. You shall live also, he says. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, as it lives its way out in your life and in mine and as people throughout the world, takes hell itself on takes hell itself on and the opponents of Christ in our time and in our day saying no more. Enough of this. You're no longer in control because Jesus Christ lives and Jesus Christ reigns here. One of the greatest preachers of the early Christian church, John Chrysostom, way back in about 300, uh, 380 AD, more than 1600 years ago, got into the pulpit on an Easter Sunday morning, and he spoke to his Easter people about hope being revived through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And he spoke to them also about hell being in turmoil because of the resurrection of Christ. And referring to the Old Testament, he said, Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O hell, have been troubled by encountering God below. And then Chrysostom went on to explain that text. And he says, hell is in turmoil because it's been eclipsed. Hell is in turmoil because it's been mocked. Hell is in turmoil for it is destroyed. Hell is in turmoil for it's annihilated. Hell is in turmoil for it is now made captive. Hell grasped a corpse and discovered it to be God. Hell seized earth and in doing so it encountered the Lord of all heaven. Hell took what it saw and was overcome by what it had not seen. Hell is indeed 
still in perpetual turmoil because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it all began on the day that we celebrate today, on Easter Sunday, on the day when the bashed and the battered and the shattered hopes of the first disciples were revived and resurrected and renewed through their encounter with the risen and the living Lord Jesus Christ, the same risen Christ who encounters you today through the word that you hear here and through the sacrament that you will soon here receive the same Lord that encountered the disciples coming to you and encountering you right now. So you don't lose hope. Do not lose hope. Even when it appears that all in the world that is wrong is in control. Even when in your own life's experience, it appears at first that death has won the day. Don't lose hope. Death can't win the day. It hasn't won the day, not for you, not for any of God's people. And you know why. Because, as the great English author and Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton once said, Christianity has seemed to die and rise many times over, but it never loses hope because it has a God who knows his way out of the grave. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. A blessed Easter to you all. Amen.